I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of Live Wire is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving or cleaning, even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. And auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Good evening to all you listeners, far and wide. I'm Morgan Freeman, and I'm pleased to spend some time with you this evening. I'll never forget the night I first laid ears on that little radio program that could. It was March 17, 2012, the night of their 100th live program. The night began as so many others would, with the hustle and bustle of musicians, poets, sketch comedians, writers, and of course, the fretting and sweating of one Miss Courtney Harmeister, the program's host. Many were the anxieties rattling around under that 100% natural red hair of hers. <laughs> were her essays punchy and timely? Were all the comedy pieces up to par? And just how high was the band? <laughs> and would the audience let them get away with a Caucasian member of the cast doing a somewhat flawed but loving impression of a beloved African-American film legend? <laughs> of course they would. They were a wise and urbane bunch, and a handsome one, too. Perhaps a little heavy on the fleece, but I, I don't want to nitpick. But how long were they going to have to wait for the show to begin? That became the real question. Perhaps these folks didn't understand that I get paid by the word. I'm going to buy a new Prius after the show, I think. Well, uh, I see some angry faces, so I'd, I'd better get a move on. As an old friend of mine used to say, you either get busy living or get busy dying. Well, I'm here to tell you that this bunch made with the former. What show is this, you ask? It's, it's... John Roderick, author Susan Orlean, and music from the Portland Cello Project. That's tonight on Livewire Radio. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Courtney Hameister, and you also have comedy from Faces for Radio Theater to look forward to. Poet Scott Poole with What I Learned Tonight, wherein Scott sits in our audience and in just one hour, the time it took John Grisham to object to his editor's objections to all the objections in his court scenes, he writes a poem that encompasses all the lessons he's learned during the show. And music from our house band, Ralph Huntley and the Mutton Chops. Thank you, Ralph. So as I mentioned earlier, John Roderick will be on the show. John is the lead singer of The Long Winters. He's a great musician, but also you will discover he is quite the advice columnist. And we also have Susan Orlean on the show, and she spent almost 10 years writing the story of Rin Tin Tin and his owner, Lee Duncan, who found him as a puppy in a blown-out building in Germany in World War I. And he found a way to get him back to America, where he turned him into a movie star. And her previous book, The Orchid Thief, was about John LaRoche, a man obsessed with the ghost orchid. 
She writes about people who are so passionate about something that pretty much every day of their life is spent in pursuit of it. And reading her work made me think about whether or not I'd ever been that passionate about anything. I came to the fairly quick conclusion that I haven't. The things that I can remember being pretty passionate about are, in order of appearance, Sean Cassidy and Parker Stevenson, John Travolta, Grease, Ballet for two seconds, uh, Mashed Potatoes and Gravy, Musical Theater, Post-Feminism, Movies, Emailing My Friends on AOL, Six Feet Under, A Guy, and a Radio Show. But I never got to that obsessive point about any of it, except maybe the mashed potatoes, but that was only on Thanksgiving Day, so it hasn't really made the rest of my life unmanageable yet. I remember reading a story in Good Magazine last year about this man. His name was George Felton, and he loved charts and data. He loved them so much, in fact, that every year he took all the data he collected over the one year on himself, which was a lot, and he designed an annual report on him. (laughs) He made a chart for everything. Restaurants visited, his mother's daily mood, fish versus meat versus shellfish consumed. It sounds a little obsessive in theory, and in fact, the article is called The Seven Habits of Highly Obsessive People. But the charts are beautiful and meticulously designed, and when you look at them, you understand why he's passionate about creating them. The charts make it feel like there's some order to things, and that just by creating them, he's exerted some sense of control over his life. It feels calming. And it made me think that if I can be made to understand a passion for charts, I can probably understand a passion for just about anything. But a true passion requires a level of investment and resolution I just may not be capable of. You have to have decided that given the choice of everything in the world, I choose to be passionate about this. This is my thing. I have trouble in the cereal aisle. (laughs) I stand there almost paralyzed by the choices, imagining the various eventualities, how each cereal will make my life better in a different way. Like I have a sense that a Cocoa Puff day would start well, but end badly. (laughs) And a Kashi day, on the other hand, would start horribly, but might end with a hike up a mountain, something (laughs) I haven't done in ever. (laughs) So the point is I have trouble making decisions, being sure. And passion is a leap of faith, it's knowing that what you're doing is so right, so meaningful, that it is worth every minute you spend on it, regardless of what other people think about charts and graphs or German shepherds or collecting porcelain figurines of Jesus playing various sports with children. I read a quote recently that really hit home. I hope you did something important today because you gave up a day of your life doing it which is a pretty hard-hitting statement, but even more hard-hitting when you read it on the internet after three hours of watching back episodes of Archer on Netflix. (laughs) I think some people are born passionate and others have to spend some time finding theirs, but I would just like to say to those of you who are still seeking your passion, you just might want to step up the search because every day that you spend trying to find it is a day you spend not doing it. And back-to-back episodes of Archer can only fill that void for so long. Thanks. Tonight's musical guest isn't just a band, they're a band with a mission. The Portland Cello Project has been around since 2007, and since then, their mission has been threefold. Play music on the cello you wouldn't normally hear on the cello. Perform in venues where you wouldn't normally hear the cello. And build bridges by collaborating with musicians from various musical styles. And so far, they've accomplished all three. They've played Pantera and Britney Spears covers. They have played at NBA basketball games and punk clubs. And they have collaborated with musicians from Peter Yarrow of Peter, Paul, and Mary to the Dandy Warhols. Please welcome the Portland Cello Project to Livewire. Thank you. 
Violoncello Project. If you're in the Portland area, the Portland Cello Project will be playing at the Doug Fur. They have a CD release party on April 13th and 14th. This is Dave Foreman, and I'm 90 miles outside of Las Vegas, Nevada. Back in January, Time Magazine reported that Dennis Hoff, the Nevada brothel owner and star of HBO's documentary series Cat House, was planning to open a new venture, a science fiction-themed brothel. Hoff approached infamous Madame Heidi Fleiss as a consultant on the brothel, but now that it's open, it's turning out, he should have consulted with someone a lot more important, a science fiction expert. This is sci-fi fan and brothel client Chip Santee. Uh, greetings. Chip was displeased with his experience at the brothel. Uh, yes, I was displeased. I, uh, I selected the Battlestar Erotica experience, starring Sharon Valeri, callsign Boomer, from the reimagined series Battlestar Galactica. The whole thing was just wrong. Turns out, Hoff missed some important details. First of all, I entered the room as a commander, and I wasn't saluted. There's that. And her uniform was completely off. I mean, she had a Viper Squadron unit patch when Sharon was attached to Raptor Squadron 10. I mean, come on, hello? Were you attracted to her? Well, that's not the point, okay? They didn't even get the casting right. The actress who plays Sharon is Korean. This woman was Japanese or Vietnamese or possibly a man. I don't even know. So Chip couldn't enjoy himself. Well, how am I supposed to be able to suspend disbelief when these huge inconsistencies are present? The answer is A, I'm not. And B, there is no B, but I felt like there should have been because I had an A. But not everyone is having a bad time. This is brothel employee and slave Princess Leia, Tabitha Florence. This is much better than the last place I worked. I mean, here I never get hassled and nobody even touches me. They just sit as far away from me as possible and giggle. Sometimes they take pictures, but they don't want me to look sexy. They're just all like, now remember, you're shackled to Jabba. You have no idea whether Hans is going to save you or whatever. Look, I didn't study acting, Mr. George Lupus. Oh, but I am a certified nail technician, see? For now, Hoff has decided to consult with Trevor Lipton, the leader of Alpha Quadrant, Star Trek's International Fan Association. I asked Trevor if he thought he could put the girls into a more believable environment. His response? I don't think... What's a girl? And as for Chip... He keeps finding inconsistencies. Okay, I mean, we're in the Doctor Who room, right? This is supposed to be the TARDIS. But look at this, look at this. See, same size inside as outside. <laughs> I mean, duh! And the Star Trek experience? Uhura only knew one language, and she was poor at that one. So no, so no. I'm not going to parley vous French kisses with that lady. That is for super sure. And another thing. For Public Radio News, this is Dave Foreman standing next to a hopeless situation 90 miles outside Vegas. What does that mean? That was Trisha Ferguson, Andrew Harris, and Sean McGrath with sound effects by David Ian. Music tonight is brought to you by Dave's Killer Bread and the Bread of the Week, Nuts and Grains. Packed with nuts and cracked and rolled grains, it's a bread for humans that squirrels might enjoy. Which means that you might want to take that sandwich inside, away from their beady little eyes. <laughs> Protect your lunch. Dave's Killer Bread, making the world a better place, one loaf at a time. We'll be right back.
Livewire. Our next guest is the lead singer and principal songwriter for the Seattle band, The Long Winters. But in more recent years, he's had a career as a professional collaborator. In addition to collaborating with great bands like Death Cab for Cutie, The Decemberists, and Visqueen, he's most recently appeared as a feral mountain man on humorist John Hodgman's book tour and Jonathan Colton's most recent album. He's a musician, he's a music writer, he's a teacher, he's a published tweeter, and now he's a podcaster. He has a weekly, hour-long phone call with Merlin Mann for a podcast called Roderick on the Line. Tonight, he's reading a piece that he wrote for the Seattle Weekly. Please welcome John Roderick to Livewire. This is my advice to aspiring musicians. I've reached an age and a stature where young musicians frequently come to me for career advice. Actually, young musicians have almost no interest in career advice from me, but I get asked to speak at schools a lot, so they're forced to sit quietly. I also offer my completely unsolicited opinion to anyone unwise enough to talk about the music business within earshot of me in a public place. In short, I am a veritable fountain of information about the music business that almost no one wants to hear. And the few kids who do seem interested are only trying to figure out what not to do. No kid ever starts out thinking, I hope my band is moderately successful like that old guy's band. But the truth is that people like me, graying, semi, sort of famous, still hanging around trying to look busy, we're the source of the best advice you can get. If you asked Lady Gaga to give advice to aspiring musicians, she'd say something inspiring like, keep pushing and striving until you reach your dream. All massively successful people are full of these platitudinous horse feathers because it's what passes for wisdom in show business. Lady Gaga herself kept striving until she reached her dream. So she's never reflected on what might happen if a person kept striving and didn't reach their dream. People who become famous in youth really do believe they just worked harder or had bigger dreams, or were exceptionally more talented. But the entertainment business is a meat grinder of most people's dreams. Famous entertainer and comedian Colin Powell once said, There are no secrets to success. It is the result of preparation, hard work, and learning from failure. What Colin Powell should have said is, Success in the army comes from unquestioningly following orders for 40 years, until everyone else washes out, gets court-martialed for war crimes, or dies. I only wish the music business worked this way. <laughs> so although big stars have no idea why they became successful, they're too embarrassed or egotistical to admit that it was mostly a product of luck and pluck. And sometimes other activities that rhyme with luck and pluck. <laughs> Most musicians toil in obscurity, even the ones who keep pushing and striving until they literally weep themselves to death. And if your dream is to be universally praised as a groundbreaking auteur, you might have better luck farting rainbows at the moon. <laughs> That's not to say that there aren't thousands of rewarding and spectacular careers in music, but almost every kid I meet has the same short list of goals. Blow everyone's mind, reinvent music, and then show up to their high school reunion riding a gold-plated unicorn. One of the places you see this kind of hubris on display is in the first few interviews with a fledgling artist. Being interviewed is hard because you don't want to sound stupid, which you surely are, and you haven't figured out yet how to make your arrogance sound like quiet confidence and your fear sound like humility. Many young musicians make the mistake of taking it out on the interviewer. Obviously, this junior staffer from the Willamette Week is a high-ranking member of the showbiz Politburo. A young female rock star of my acquaintance sardonically tweeted the other day, when will rock journalists start asking dudes what it's like to be a boy in an indie rock band? Hmm. She'd obviously just been interviewed, probably by a college kid with a podcast, and took to Twitter afterwards less to issue a feminist battle cry than to call attention to her new power, humble bragging, I'm totally being interviewed, but I don't like it. It's so exhausting to be famous, but I'm keeping it street because I point out hypocrisy. <laughs> Fight the power. <laughs> Listen, no one's got more beef with, uh, than me with bad interviewers. A few weeks ago, a Seattle magazine blithely described me, 
an inveterate bachelor, as married, which made my girlfriends furious. <laughs> I personally have 50 questions I wish people would stop asking me, starting with, when's the new Long Winter's record I prepaid going to be finished? <laughs> and ending with, what's it like to not be a woman in a band? But my frustration is tempered by gratitude that anyone cares enough to be asking questions at all. It's rare that an artist remains fascinating to writers. Most of us only get a small window of attention. I've seen plenty of young bands enjoying a taste of success, loaf through their first few interviews with an attitude of, I don't like the way you phrase that question, man. Hmm. They only later discovered those were the only interviews they were ever going to do. <laughs> Music writers aren't engaged in a conspiracy of bitterness and bad taste. They're just young people trying to make sense of the world. When a guy asks, what's it like to be a woman in a rock band? He's really asking, what's it like to be a woman? <laughs> Seriously, he wants to know. <laughs> Women are mysterious to him. Likewise, when he asks, what's your wildest tour experience? He's asking, do you ever have sex with young writers? And when he asks, what's your favorite place to play? He's practically begging you, please tell me you get to have sex with music writers a lot of exotic places. <laughs> That's how all interviews go. Unless, of course, you get one of those what's your favorite color interviewers who are really asking, are you ready to be blown away by my off-the-wall interview? Don't complain, don't sneer. Just tell your story how you want it told. I hate to see young musicians get buried under waves of disappointment at the start of their careers because a bad tour and a few bits of bad press crush their dreams. You can't expect too much respect from the world right out of the gate. Sometimes you push and strive and never meet a gold-plated unicorn. But it doesn't mean you're not talented and might not have a long career if you keep at it. Often it only means that unicorns aren't real. And anyway, if you gold-plated one, it would die. John Roderick. Thank you. Hey, John. I just wanted to talk to you a minute because we are totally simpatico. We have so much in common right now because you have a podcast now. I do have a podcast. Uh, I make jokes about other podcasters, but it's only because my podcast is best. Is it, it's called Roderick on the Line. Yes. And it is an hour-long conversation every week between you and Merlin Mann. Right. Uh, just chatting. Yes, Merlin Mann, has, uh, uh, Merlin Mann is an interrupting cow. Um, and part of the theme of the podcast is that uh, he will ask me a question, I will start telling a story, and then he will interrupt me, uh, not at, a, at like a salient moment, but just because he has attention deficit disorder. <laughs> and uh, we do that for an hour. So where can people find this podcast? Uh, it's on the internet. And uh, if you Google Roderick on the line, it will take you there. Uh, uh, it's also on iTunes. And um, it's being stored in a, in a server buried under an iceberg <laughs> in space. I was going to ask you to explain what Google is, but... Oh, was explain what Google is? <laughs> it's like Bing. <laughs> well done. Well done. Uh, you're going you're gonna to play a little song for us. Yes, I will. I'm going to play a, a song on the ukulele, which is America's new sweetheart instrument. <laughs> Isn't it the cutest little thing? <laughs> right? <laughs> There's not a dry seat in the house.
Livewire Radio, and tonight's show is brought to you in part by Whole Foods Market and the Whole Planet Foundation, hoping to help a million more people in global communities to change their own lives through grants to microfinance institutions. More information can be found at wholeplanetfoundation.org. Feed your brain at Whole Foods Market. Coming this summer. Susan, everyone, this is Susan Orlean. Oh, hi. Hello. Nice to meet you. Is this about Rin Tin Tin? Yes, we would really like to option it. You want to make it into a movie? Susan Orlean has been asked to help adapt her book for the silver screen. I don't know if I'm the right person for this. Witness the true story of a celebrated writer's journey into the past of a legendary dog. <laughs> When Lee Duncan came home from World War I, he brought a hero with him. I'll call you Rin Tin Tin. He believed the dog was immortal. Three-time Academy Award winner Meryl Streep is Susan Orlean. As Meryl Streep. As Susan Orlean. And Academy Award winner Nicolas Cage is Rin Tin Tin. What do you want from me? I'm a dog! Come on! I want you to be the best. What? Are you kidding me? I could totally do that! But now, Susan Orlean finds herself face to face with an actor whose methods are unusual. So what kind of kibble did Rin Tin Tin eat? He ate kennel ration. Oh, that won't do. I can only eat dry kibble. 
Somebody call my agent. And I'm going to need to live in your house for a couple months. You don't need to do that much research. No, no, no. It's not so much research as a tax situation, okay? When someone calls for Nicholas the man, you tell them that only Nicholas the dog is here because you can't file a tax lien on a dog. You're not a dog. You want to bet? Woof, woof. See? Woof. What happens when a film star with a heavy tax burden and a staff writer for The New Yorker come together? Hey, are those, are those chickens? Yes, I raised them. Is it okay if I eat them alive? It would help me get into character. I kind of feel like those tears are a no. Nicholas Cage and Meryl Streep. Or maybe it's actually Susan Orlean. Some of the time I know it's Meryl Streep, and other times I'm like, was that her? Did the real Susan Orlean just kind of like sneak in there? Anyway, she's very good. I mean, uh, in a surprising new film about life and the complex world of capital gains tax liability. Hey, uh, do you know if I can write off this leash? Get out! Oh, sorry. Rin Tin Tin, a Spike Lee joint. That was Andrew Harris, Sean McGrath, Trisha Ferguson, and Susan Orlean, or Meryl Streep, with sound effects by David Ian. Our next guest is an author, a raiser of chickens, a staff writer at The New Yorker. Very recently, she did some acting, uh, and a person, she is a person who is interested in things. She wrote a piece for The New Yorker in the late 90s about orchids, which eventually turned into the book The Orchid Thief, which was adapted by Charlie Kaufman for the film Adaptation, in which Meryl Streep portrayed a highly fictionalized version of Ms. Orlean. Her most recent project... Just about 10 years of research on movie star and German shepherd Rin Tin Tin. His life, the life of Lee Duncan, the man who discovered him, and the lives of his descendants and the people who won't let the legend die. Her book is Rin Tin Tin, The Life and the Legend. Please welcome Susan Orlean to Livewire. Welcome to the show, Susan. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. So uh, this book is the story of Rin Tin Tin and the pretty fascinating people uh, who've kept his legacy and his offspring alive through his 90-year career. What do you think it was about this dog that just totally captured people's imaginations? Well, Rin Tin Tin first came into the public eye not in the 1950s, which is where many of us might think of him as having first become a star. He actually became a star in the 1920s in the silent film era. He was um, a puppy who had been found in World War I, brought back to the U.S. by this man, Lee Duncan, who found him on a battlefield there, and he became a star at a time, number one, silent film, where dogs could be as emotive and exciting and dramatic as a, as a human. And he became a big star, not as a sidekick, but as a leading man. And also, this was at the end of a horrible period of time, World War I, which was utterly devastating. And I think that this image of a heroic dog who could kind of solve everything who struggled through, he was always shown as struggling, and then finally, because he was loyal and strong and righteous, he would come out and solve the problems that had been presented to him. So I think he had this heroic quality, but he wasn't a person, which made it almost more possible to fall in love with him and be inspired by him. Well, and he had this incredibly expressive face, and and Lee had taught him these extraordinary tricks. I mean, he really acted. He, yeah. His face changed. and Yeah, if you see those films, the silent films, he, he was paid five to eight times as much as the human actors in the film. When you see the films, you know why. And he was a pretty extraordinary talent in that way. Didn't he actually win... an Oscar, but they changed the voting because they wanted a human to win it? Yeah, this is one of the darker episodes in American (laughs) history. (laughs) 
It was the very first year the Oscars were being given out. According to my reporting, he received more, the most votes for Best Actor. And the Academy, being a new organization with this new kooky idea of giving out these Oscars, thought maybe it wouldn't look that good if we give the first Best Actor award to a dog. I think they might have So been they wise. rewrote the rules saying that the awards had to go to a human. Um, <laughs> I didn't realize this, but back in the silent era, there were a lot of dogs. And in fact, um, there's a wonderful uh, piece that you wrote in the book that I was wondering if you could just read um, sure. about dogs in film at that, at that yeah, point. Yeah, I, mean, I will preface this. At the time Rin Tin Tin became a big star in the 20s, there were 80, 80 other German shepherds starring in films. Um, here we are almost 100 years later, He's the only one that we remember. Although my next book, of course, will be about Zandra, the dog. No, I'm, <laughs> I'm kidding. All right, here we go. Uh, dogs, in fact, were perfect heroes, unknowable but accessible, driven but egoless, strong but tragic, limited by their muteness and animal vulnerability. Humans played heroes in film, too, but they were more complicated to admire because they were so particular, too much like us or too much unlike us or too much like someone we knew. Dogs, on the other hand, have the talent of seeming to understand and care about humans in spite of not being human and perhaps are better at it because of that difference. They are compassionate without being competitive and there is nothing in their valor that threatens us, no demand for reciprocity. As Lee knew very well, a dog can make you feel complete without ever expecting much in return. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Livewire. We're talking to Susan Orlean about her book, Rin Tin Tin, The Life and the Legend. And... It's interesting to me, it seems like so much of the reason that they would have used the dogs as well was just that it wasn't any specific gender necessarily, noticeably, or or race of person, that it was just completely universal. Well, what's funny is that Rin Tin Tin was the puppy of a German war dog found in France, and he became the ultimate American icon. People really responded to it as a universal, the way a, a person could never be quite so universal because they're either they're American or they're tall or they're, uh, you know, they, they have such specific connections or they look like your Uncle, you know, Joe. You exactly, know, like. you can't stand that guy. <laughs> right. Yeah. right, and with dogs, you don't bring any of that to it. Yeah. I wanted to talk about the the papers. You spent so much time with Lee Duncan's papers, with Burt Leonard's papers, who was one of the producers of Rin Tin Tin, the television show. And at one point you said, I, have, I had never realized how crackling and alive someone's papers could be. Can you explain that? I have done all of my writing um, up until now, mostly in the here and now. Spend time with real people and going out and having experiences and talking with them. When I started this book, I suddenly thought, what am I doing? First of all, it's about a dog. Secondly, everybody in it, everybody important in the story is dead. So there was a, I had a couple of dark nights of the soul <laughs> where I thought, oh my, what am I doing? Because I'd never done a lot of historical research and I just thought, well, if I'm going to read someone's papers, it's going to be so boring. Instead, it was, it was amazing. It was much more intimate than an interview would have ever been. I mean, when someone dies, if they're a person of some import, all of their papers are gathered up, and they're not really censored. So you yeah. see a lot of material that you would never be exposed to or hear about if you had talked to someone, and Lee in particular was very reserved. He, he was somebody who wasn't going to reveal a lot about himself. 
he had been put in an orphanage when he was a young kid because his mother simply couldn't take care of him. So I found the papers where she wrote at, at the point she was leaving Lee at the orphanage that her husband had deserted her. She had no idea if he was alive or dead. Lee maintained always that his father had died of appendicitis. So that was an example of something, first of all, it was incredibly emotional to read this note, this young woman leaving her kids in an orphanage, but also knowing I would have never heard that from him directly. And it was, this, it was a kind of marvelous realization that we exist in all of these, um, the, the ephemera, the flotsam and jetsam that we leave behind is actually full of life. It also made me think, and now what? Since exactly. nothing is on paper anymore. I mean, would I sit there going through someone's hard drive well, and I think that's go, what's going to happen. Whoa, now I really feel like I know him. Right. And I actually do wonder about that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, before you go, I just wanted to ask you, you write these books about these people who are so passionate about these things. Is there anything that you're that passionate about? Well, this is always the great question. And it was certainly the... Um, essential question in The Orchid Thief, because I had spent all this time following a, a very loopy guy, um, John LaRoche, for a couple of years. And so much of the time, I would just look at him and think, you are so weird. You're so, you, you know, you, orchids, orchids, this is what you, this is your life, your... And, you know, I couldn't figure out how could he shape his whole life around this crazy passion, in particular, this passion for getting this one rare orchid. And there was a day where I went with him hiking into the Fakahatchee, which is a swamp in South Florida. And believe me, I never had that as part of my job description, swamp hiking. Mm -hmm. But it, it came about. And I hate swamps. I mean, who wouldn't? And I was following him, we're going further and further into the swamp, and the water's up at my waist, and, you know, I'm feeling around for alligators and snakes, and it's just, like, the worst situation. And, <laughs> and I'm looking at him and thinking, what kind of idiot would go hiking through a swamp looking for orchids? Oh. <laughs> uh, right. And there's a kind of a very sad moment for me where I thought, okay, let me think. There are two of us here. <laughs> One of them is that idiot, and the other is this idiot. And it made me realize, even though I've always looked at these obsessives as these odd alien beings who are so committed, and I can't understand it because I'm so kind of chill, and I don't... Right. I don't get really caught up in stuff, but obviously I had been missing the nose of my face, essentially, which is I love stories. I love, I love learning stories. I love telling stories. I love the idea that I've told stories and someone has experienced that story and come away feeling maybe changed or or that the world opened up a little bit for them. And so I am that idiot hiking through the swamp. I mean, it was that sort of moment of revelation that I am really passionate about, about this idea of story and, and learning and telling them. Well, this is a beautiful story. Uh, the book is Rin Tin Tin, The Life and the Legend. The author is Susan Orlean. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks. It's been great My pleasure. Courtney Harmeister has just concluded a spirited and canine-themed interview with sketch comedian and author Susan Orlean. But the question I can't shake is, why in the name of all that's holy was I not asked to narrate that movie about Rin Tin Tin? Somebody's not getting a Christmas card this year, and I'm 
I'm speaking directly to you, Susan Orlean, or Meryl Streep, or whoever you are. And I'm sitting right here. And now it's time for some teeny tiny tales, some Lilliputian literature. It's time for Livewire's Flash Fiction. Tonight our audience has been given the Herculean task of writing an entire story in just six words based on a prompt in honor of Susan Orlean and adaptation. That prompt tonight is My Life as a Movie. Members of Faces for Radio Theater have their top picks and we will now read them with the help of band leader and musical gadabout Ralph Huntley. And now Flash Fiction. Tim writes, like Groundhog Day, minus personal growth. (laughs) Molly writes, not what my mother hoped for. Dale writes, one eating contest, downhill from there. Katie writes, constantly falling down, always getting up. Damien writes, all cat production of Repo Man. (laughs) Great job, audience on audience. Flash fiction. Flash Fiction was brought to you tonight, as always, by New Belgium Brewing Company this month, featuring their Dig Pale Ale. With four distinct hops and a burst of lemon and passion fruit aromas, the deepest you'll have to dig is your kitchen drawer for an opener. Dig that. Thanks, New Belgium. We'll be right back. Now, once again, the Portland Cello Project.
project. And now, as promised, the man who has been writing this entire time while we've been really doing nothing of consequence up here. To sum it all up for us, please welcome poet Scott Poole. What I Learned Tonight by Scott Poole. I learned tonight that if everything I did was narrated by Morgan Freeman and accompanied by the Portland Cello Project, like going to get the dog neutered, or cleaning the fetid grease off the slimy wheels of the burger preparation table at McDonald's, maybe I would begin to become more passionate. Maybe I would run through the forest more. That's a passionate Ren Tin Tin-like thing to do. Passionate like chasing a rabbit through a forest with a cape on, chasing it hither and yon and around and around, a sylvan lake bathed in an off-white kiss of fog. Because when you're being accompanied by cello music and narrated by Morgan Freeman, that is what makes the most sense to do. <laughs> even with cello players running after you and Morgan Freeman chasing you and maybe even Morgan Freeman's musical agent trying to dispense advice for the music business to the Portland Cello Project while dodging trees about how to make it in the biz while running through a forest, like how long one should run a podcast, and in what particular context is the best way to talk about pump chili, pumped from the horn of a gold-plated unicorn by jacking the tail back and forth when you're at 7-Eleven pissed off and in no mood to be charmed by unicorns dispensing hot comfort fruit from their stainless steel horns when all you want to do is fill your belly with toxic chili, fart really loud once you roar out onto the highway at 200 miles an hour, feeling like a lady horse, feeling like a king, that you even whip out your ukulele until you see a legendary dog on the edge of the highway barking, hey, don't run into me, I'm legendary. Swerve and run into a tree that looks like Meryl Streep, or maybe it is Meryl Streep playing a tree, I don't know, it was a fiery crash. It all happened so fast, get off my back. Later, that legendary dog quietly peed on the tree or Meryl Streep. Because that's what legendary dogs do. And it was the finest urination on a tree ever depicted. And I should know, I'm narrated by Morgan Freeman. Thank you very much. Scott Poole, everybody. That's our show for tonight. Thank you so much for listening. to our guests tonight, John Roderick, Susan Orlean, and the Portland Cello Project. The Mutton Chops are Ralph Huntley, Reed Wallsmith, and Paul Evans, now featuring their new record of 99 songs of 30 seconds or less at mchops.com. Tonight's show was made possible in part by our sponsors, New Belgium Brewing Company, Whole Foods Market, Dave's Killer Bread, and Burgerville, introducing Burgerville Radio, featuring music from Northwest musicians in all their restaurants. Additional funding provided by the Regional Arts and Culture Council and Work for Art, the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation, and listeners like you fine people. Hotel accommodations generously provided by the Hotel Deluxe. Our executive producer is Robin Tenenbaum. The show is produced by Courtney Hommeister and Jim Brunberg. The faces for radio theater are writers Sean McGrath and Courtney Hommeister, performers Andrew Harris and Tricia Ferguson, director Jason Rouse, and sound effects by David Ian. Additional show writers are Jason Rouse and house poet Scott Poole with guest writer Ted Douglas. Our technical director is Jonathan Newsom with house sound by Scott McLeod. Recording engineer is Graham Nystrom. Production management by Drew Flint. Thank you to Rose City Sound. Show theme by Courtney Von Drele and Ralph Huntley. Our show photographer is Jenny Baker. Livewire was created by Kate Sokoloff and Robin Tenenbaum. For more information about Livewire or to subscribe to our podcast, visit livewireradio.org. Dear Livewire, when we first met, I was really shy. I had no idea we'd spend so much time together or that you'd be 
one to fill my heart with, with joy and make me want to be a better person. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know you were here. I was busy reading a review from one of our many, many rapturously smitten listeners. Oh, wait, actually, no, sorry. This is from Elena. Anyway, the point is, uh, it would be really helpful if you wanted to leave us a review. Feel free to say really nice things about us, and uh, we'll even read them now and then on the show. So you might hear your review of LiveWire read on the program itself. Uh, reviews help other people hear about the show, and then we can keep doing this for a long, long time because we love having this job. Uh, thank you so much if you've left a review, and if you're about to leave a review, you can go ahead and do it right where you get the podcast.